Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, and welcome to Mets 360 here on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brian Jura, and in just one moment, we'll be joined by uh, Dan Schlossberg. He's the author of The New Baseball Bible and a uh, 48-year journalism veteran, and we're going to talk about uh, both his new book and the Mets-Braves rivalry. I have to gloat here for just a second. Uh, We're in the ninth inning, and uh, the Mets have a uh, double-digit lead, something they haven't had a whole lot of here lately. So let's get right to it and and bring Dan aboard. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. We, uh, we're going to talk Mets Braves in, in just a moment, but uh, I know you've got a new book out. And uh, what's the new baseball Bible about? It's actually like the Woody Allen movie, where you always wanted to know about sex but were afraid to ask. Just substitute <laughs> the word baseball for sex, and you've got it. It's something for everybody and a lot of trivia, a lot of illustrations. Many of them never printed anywhere before. And the bargain of the year, $17.99 for 424 oversized pages. Fantastic. We'll talk more about the, the book at the end of the show. But right now we, we're going to talk uh, Mets Braves. And uh, okay. I know uh, obviously I'm a Mets fan, and I think you've got uh, a little uh, – Braves in your in your vast baseball background. What does the the Braves Mets rivalry mean to you? Well, for many years, especially during that fourteen year title run that the Braves had, the Mets and Braves were great rivals. It was like the Red Sox and the Yankees. Really, they had a terrific rivalry going back and forth. And one thing that I resented about the Mets, to be honest with you, they kept the Braves out of the National League East for 25 years, for a long time. Because when the National League split into divisions, we're talking two divisions, when they first split into divisions, the Mets insisted that the Cardinals be in their division, because they were the championship team in 1968. The Mets insisted they be in their division. And the Cardinals would only do it if their rival, the Cubs, could also be in their division. So the powers that be put the Braves and Reds in the West and the Cardinals and Cubs in the East, despite the geography. And for 25 years, the Braves were in the wrong division until they finally got that fixed after the 1993 season. Starting in 1994, the Braves joined the National East. And I think they've uh, spent about 20 years beating up on the Mets for that. And actually, since the Braves moved to Atlanta. I think that the all-time series, the, the Braves have something like a 30-game lead on the Mets. Uh, of course, some of that is still a little bit of the expansion Mets in 66, 67, and 68 being horrible, but also because the Braves have just beat up on them here recently, especially in Turner Field. But in, I always like to point out in the, the late 80s, the, the Mets had a, a quite a nice run against the Braves as well. Now, that was when the Braves were actually the Bad News Braves. I think they made a movie about that with Walter (laughs) Matthau. But then later on, when the Braves had those three Hall of Fame starters, that was an unbeatable combination. In fact, no team in baseball history has ever had three starters together for more than 10 years all make the Hall of Fame. 
Well, um, let, let's shift a little bit to, to offense. You know, we always hear as Met fans about Chipper Jones and Freddie Freeman being Mets killers. Is, is there a, a opposite of that? Is, is there a, a brave killer among Mets players in your mind? There, there is, and it's very really funny because you're, you're going to think I'm going to say, well, Cespedes or a big home run hitter. Actually, it's the little infielders, Jose Reyes, and more recently, uh, Cabrera, Asdrubal Cabrera, who've really, really done in the Mets with very time, done in the Braves with very timely hits. And for pitching, uh, DeGrom is just about unbeatable. I mean, I, I'm much more afraid to face him than Syndergaard. It's funny that you mentioned Reyes. He had a five RBI night tonight, and they mentioned it was only the second time in his career that he's had it, and the first time since 2003. So a uh, good call there on, on Reyes. Um, let, let's shift it back to a, a brave uh player dominating the Mets, and that's uh, Julio Tehran, who's had just phenomenal success against the Mets. Finally, the last time out, the Mets got to him a little bit, and just want to know what are your thoughts about Tehran in general and versus the Mets in particular? He was a lot better pitcher last year than what he's shown so far this year. He got no support at all last year. He only won seven games, but he did make the all-star team, and it was richly deserved. But my favorite game of the whole season, obviously, was the one hitter that he had against the Mets, the one-hit shutout, complete game that he threw against the Mets last year. That was probably my favorite game of the year. Tehran is a real interesting guy to me because you, you look at him and you don't see what makes him so successful right off the bat. He doesn't throw 98 miles an hour. He doesn't have just killer off-speed stuff. But he seems to me to be one of those guys where the, the sum is greater than the individual components. What do you think makes him so successful? Well, he really throws strikes, Brian, and that's the key. He doesn't walk too many guys, although this year his walk rate is up, and that's hurt him quite a bit. He's also a good hitting pitcher, a good fielding pitcher. He normally runs the bases well, although the other night he made a big blunder on the bases, and it really hurt the Braves in that game he pitched. Let's move over to offense, and, and one guy who stands out to me on the Braves, and that's Matt Kemp, who's uh, done a great job here in the early going against the Mets. And it's such a change for me because the Braves got him from the Padres, and when he was with the Padres, he just seemed, I don't know, indifferent on the field. Uh, what's going on with him? What's changed since the, the move to Atlanta? And do you have any concern about him uh, relapsing to those San Diego days? I think he's going to be just fine. And we saw last year after he arrived on August 2nd, what a difference he makes batting fourth behind the left-handed hitting Freddie Freeman really helped both guys. I think both guys, I'm predicting right now, that both guys are going to hit over 40 home runs this year, which is going to make the Braves very difficult to beat in their home ballpark. SunTrust Park is definitely a hitter's field. And Kemp, you've got to remember, grew up as a Braves fan in Oklahoma. He was a Braves fan a long time ago. So he was happy to get back there. He had an all-star career when he was with the Dodgers, and then seen, things seemed to go south for him his last year or two in L.A., and then really seemed like the bottom fell out, but there's been a rejuvenation, as you note, in, in Atlanta. And uh, if, if he and Freeman combine for 40 home runs, that's going to be a, a tremendous amount of offense. As a Mets fan, I, I look at what the Braves did in the early part of last year where they were struggling to hit home runs and they were struggling to score runs, and then Kemp comes along and then seems to jumpstart everything. And then you add Enciarte, who I believe started last year on the DL, and those are a couple of impact players they didn't have when they struggled so mightily at the beginning of the year. Now, it's a, it's what's a good your point, take on Brian, the Braves' because... offense? Well, NCRD started extremely slowly after he came back from that hamstring issue, and so did Freddie Freeman. In fact, there was actually talk 
at the end of April last year are sending Freddie back to Gwinnett AAA to get a stroke back. He was in that big of a slump. But he came on so strong, and especially after Kemp arrived, but also the promotion of Dansby Swanson, who hit 302 in brief action at the end of last year. He's off to a slow start this year, but he's the future of that franchise. Now, you mentioned Swanson, and he's a, he's a guy that I really like. He came up and had such a fantastic debut at the end of last year, but he struggled this year. But tonight, he got, he got on base three times by walks, and it's always frustrating when you, when you walk a guy who's hitting a buck 50. But two of those three times, he came around to score. So if Swanson gets going like he did last year, I mean, that's a really deep Braves lineup. Well, also, you got to remember they added Brandon Phillips, who's hitting really well over 300. And to have him in the number two slot, you know, you have Enciardi and then Phillips and then Freeman and then Kemp and then Marcakis, who's also almost at 300. Those are five really good hitters right at the top of the lineup. The Braves are going to score a lot of runs this year. The whole key for them is refreshing that bullpen. That bullpen needs to be flushed out. Except for closer Jim Johnson, everybody else needs to go. Now, you mentioned the bullpens, and that's been a, a sore spot for both the Braves and the Mets so far. And uh, you mentioned that being something that the Braves need to address. If you had a magic wand and, and you could trade the entire Mets bullpen for the entire Braves bullpen, would you do it? In a heartbeat. I think the Mets bullpen is terrific. <laughs> I've, I've been following them. The Braves have trouble scoring anything off the Mets bullpen. I especially, while well, Familia last year was terrific all year long until that one wild card game when he couldn't hold the lead in the ninth inning. But I like Reed. I like Familia. Uh, some of the other guys they've got, Edgen and Smoker, the lefties, they look pretty good to me. I would, in a heartbeat. In fact, I'd throw in Freddie Freeman to make us an even trade. <laughs> well, uh, you'll be pleased to know it's a, it's a final tonight. And uh, DeGrom didn't have his uh, A game, but uh, pitched well enough, and uh, the Mets came away with the win. But uh, anyway, um, the Mets bullpen gets a lot of grief, especially in, in Mets circles, because they've had so much issues. And it's been kind of they're getting it from both ends because the starters are banged up and they're not being able to go deep into games. And then they're also having extra inning games. I believe they played uh, a 16-inning game, a 12-inning game, and a couple others that went in extra innings too. So uh, the Mets have like 20 more innings pitched from their from their bullpen than the Braves do so far this year. And it's just tough to, to have to shoulder that kind of load, especially this early. Well, the problem for the Mets, from my perspective, seems to be their starting pitchers who are supposed to be fabulous have not lived up to their reputations. They've had injuries, they've had other problems. And on top of that, I think Terry Collins puts the hook out too often. He changes pitchers way too often. So when he winds up in an extra any game, he gets into trouble or even a high scoring game like that 23 23-run game that Washington had against the Mets, and he had to use Ploiecki, the catcher, to pitch in relief. You know, that's only because he changes pitchers so often you don't want to wear everybody out. Yeah, he's uh, burning down the bullpen, no doubt about it. Um, now, let's talk – you're a month into the season right now. Let's talk a little bit about preseason expectations and, and what you thought of both the Mets and Braves coming into the season, uh, where you think they are right now, and, and what your expectations for both teams will be at the end of the year. Well, I'm going to surprise you because I picked the Mets first, and I thought that their young pitching, if it, were, if it stayed healthy, was going to make the difference. However, obviously, with Syndergaard out probably at least until the All-Star break, and we don't know about some of the other guys in the starting rotation, like Steven Matz and Seth Lugo. 
Got to pick Washington first. Washington has great starting pitching. I mean, to me, you know, they're pitching with, with Max Scherzer and Gio Gonzalez and Steven Strasburg. Those are the, that's the best big three in the National League, in my opinion. So I think Washington, plus they're hitting their lineup, up and down their lineup, Ryan Zimmerman, Daniel Murphy, the ex-Met. I just think Washington is the strongest team in that division by far. So the Mets should still get into the playoffs as a wild-card team. I do think the Braves are going to finish third, and they will finish over 500. That's my wild prediction of the night. And the reason I'm saying that is because if you look back at last year, after the arrival of Matt Kemp, after the All-Star game last year, the Braves were above 500. And they also finished 20 and 10, 20, winning 20 of their last 30. So with good offense and decent starting pitching in the Braves, except for Bartolo Colon, they do have decent starting pitching. I think that'll help them finish third ahead of the Marlins and the Phillies. Now, uh, so right now the, the Braves and Mets are trading off going back and forth into last place. So even despite the, the great start by the offense and the overall poor start, do you think that they'll be able to, to come back and finish over 500 for the year? It's been a great start compared to last season. Last year the Braves opened up 9-28. and 28. <laughs> So, yeah, there are a few games under 500, but I don't think that's going to be an issue. And head-to-head with the Mets, they're 4-4. Four and four, And last year, the Braves won the season series 10-9. to nine. And the rivalry, I guess, still exists because those games were critical to the Mets, you know, in not winning the division last year, had to have a better record against the Braves. You know, it's funny. We were talking earlier about how it seems to be uh, in shifts. Uh, for in, in the 80s, the, the Mets dominated, and then here in the 2000s, the Braves have dominated. But I think that it's essentially 500 since 2013, which was the – I think that was the year the Braves won, what was it, 95 or 96 games? So in, yes. in the last few years, um, they – the, the the series has been extremely competitive, which almost flies in the face of the history of the of the the, the two teams' head-to-head results. And you, you noted that uh, so far that they're they're even on this series and they still on this season, but they still have 12 games to go. And it'll be real interesting to say to see how it plays out, especially with the the new ballpark. You mentioned that you think it's going to be a, a hitter's park, and to me, although they they didn't hit any home runs tonight. The ball really seemed to be flying in the power alleys. Um, do you have any other uh, insight into into the new park and what your overall impressions are and how you think it'll play the rest of the year? Well, for one thing, Brian, I was very surprised to see that down the right field line, it's only 325. That is shorter than almost every other major league ballpark, with the exception of Fenway Park, of course. But 325, I mean, that, that's a short right field. And the ball really seems to fly, which probably explains why Ender Inciardi, who had three home runs for the entire season last year, already has five this year in a month. 325 is shockingly low. I know that there's a a minimum now for any ballpark that's built, and some of the older ballparks like Fenway and and Wrigley, they kind of get grandfathered in because they were fitting them into a neighborhood. But nobody fits a ballpark into a neighborhood anymore. They're they're built out in the suburbs. And how far away from downtown Atlanta is this new ballpark? Well, it's pretty far away, and it's a big problem because there is no mass transit to get there. And the traffic was pretty brutal at rush hour without the ballpark being there. So the Braves actually had to move back their starting time from 7.05 to 7.35. 
to let rush hour die down a little bit and accommodate their fans. But it's a problem. And also, since they had that major fire and I-85 trestle collapsed, that was a big deal. And that's really going to hurt people getting to the ballpark, too. He's Dan, and I'm Brian, and you're listening to Mets 360 here on Block Talk Radio. We're talking Mets and Braves and rivalry and, and all things about it, and I want to shift over into to ownership some. Uh, since Bernie Madoff arrived on the scene, Mets fans have had nothing but complaints with the uh, Mets ownership, and those are guys who made their fortune in real estate but who pretty much run the, the team as like it, it's a really important thing for them. And you contrast that with the Braves who have corporate ownership. Um, so what, what do you think are the pros and cons of uh, that type of ownership? Well, after enjoying the Ted Turner regime for so many years, I mean, Ted was a terrific owner who cared about the team. He was such a hands-on owner, he even managed the team for a day. And he would spend any amount of money to help his team. Unfortunately, John Malone of Liberty Media is the cheapest SOB, to be polite, <laughs> among all baseball owners. He's the wealthiest owner in Major League Baseball. He's worth $7 billion. That's Liberty Media. And he hasn't spent a dime on the Braves. If you put any money into the team, the Braves would sign up every available free agent. They should have signed Matt Wieters to handle the catching over the winter. Instead, he went to Washington, the Braves' number one rival, really. And I just wish that the Braves had money at their disposal. They really don't. You know, earlier we talked about 2013, the year that the the Braves, I believe they won the division and won 96 games. And then it seemed like after that they kind of tore apart that team, which was very surprising for me as an outsider. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could speak to a little bit about that and then uh, how the finances played into that. The Braves basically felt they had a lot of veterans with high salaries and they had nothing coming up from the minor leagues. Unfortunately, their trading wave also included some players who should not have gone away, such as Craig Kimbrell, who already has nine saves this season for the Boston Red Sox, such as shortstop Andrelton Simmons, who's having a phenomenal season with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. But the biggest guy who got away, in my opinion, was Evan Gaddis. They traded him to the Houston Astros for Mike Fultonavich, who's the number five starter with the Braves. He's got a good arm, but he's very erratic and inconsistent. Gaddis last year hit 32 home runs. The Braves said he couldn't catch, but he was a lot better catcher than Christian Betancourt, their catcher of the future, who wound up being a minor league pitcher in the San Diego system. In addition to the guys you mentioned, they also had uh, Matt Kemp and uh, Jason Hayward. And I thought that it was going to be an either-or situation with those two players. They were going to sign, re-sign one of them and then trade the other. And then they went ahead and traded both of them and then Kimbrell and, and then the entire exodus that you talked about. And wh- where, do you, where do you feel the, the Braves are in their rebuild right now? Do you think they're, I don't know, 80% done? Or do you, do you still think that there's some suffering to go for Braves fans? There is a little bit of suffering left, but I think the guy you're referring to is Justin Upton, not Matt Kemp. It was Matt, Justin right, Upton right, and correct, Jason Hayward correct. were the guy. And they also traded away B.J. Upton, which was probably a good move since he's now in the minor leagues. But mm-hmm. I think the Braves, you know, the Hayward trade, they had to move him before he became a free agent. He wasn't going to stay with the Braves. Once again, I get back to John Malone of Liberty Media being a cheap SOB and not willing to pay the going rate for Jason Hayward. I wish we would have kept Jason Hayward. That would have been nice. But we didn't do that. 
Uh, Nick Markakis is a good player, but doesn't have the potential that Jason Hayward does, or the speed for that matter, and plus the age. But, you know, what can I tell you about it? If you if you have the money and you spend it, it really helps. Look at the Red Sox. They sign so many free agents. Chris Sale they acquired because they have the money to you know to trade and buy guys. David Price was another one. There are many guys who were purchased by the Boston Red Sox. That's just one team, and there's so many others. The Cleveland Indians signing Edwin Encarnacion over the winter. What a great player he is, and so much of an upgrade for them at first base too. Yeah, speaking of Jason Hayward. You know, he's got some history. I believe it was a uh, a pitch against the Mets that hit him in the face and really seemed to have slowed his offensive development. But in the meantime, he's become one of the finest defensive outfielders that there are, and a lot of his value these days seems to be tied up in his defense. And as, as a Braves fan, if you really want him back, I, I think the Cubs might uh, give you that contract. We don't want that contract. I mean, there's no way. That contract <laughs> makes no sense at all. But as I said earlier, the Braves had too many contracts of veterans. They had a very weak farm system. They were looking at the future, and they knew there were going to be several rough years, and they were right. Now, do you know much about the Braves minor league system? I think they've got some heralded pitchers uh, on the horizon. If you know anything about that uh, I, uh, that I you do. can share with us. I do, and Baseball America rates it the number one farm system out of all 30 teams. So these guys are going to be coming up. When the Braves signed Bartolo Colon and R.A. Dickey during the winter, they said they, said they were going to be there for one year just, just to lend some veteran experience. Actually, Dickey has an option year, a club option for 2018, but there's no way that Colon was even going to survive this season, especially the way he's performed starting at spring training. He was awful. I saw him pitch live in spring training. He was terrible then. And I thought, okay, once the season starts, he's going to improve. But he, he's not going to, I don't think. So there are guys. Newcomb, a guy they got in the Andrelton Simmons trade from the Angels, supposed to be a very good pitcher, a big right-hander, six foot five, And I bet he'll be up before long. And they have a bunch of other arms. Max Freed is a name that you should know. He was acquired from the Padres, a former first-round draft pick. And there are other arms as well on the double-A AA and triple-A level that should be coming up pretty soon. One guy that, that I'm aware of uh, is a 19-year-old in double-A named Colby Allard, and he's yes. really rocketed through the system, and the, the Braves have been extremely aggressive with his uh, promotion. It's, it's not very often that you see a 19-year-old starting year in double-A. In They're also very high on a left-handed relief pitcher named A.J. Minter, who throws very hard. It'll be sort of like promoting John Rocker without the mouth. <laughs> John Rocker, we could have an entire show uh, based on based on him. Have you heard anything what he's up to these days? He's a political columnist and a speaker, and he still as outspoken as he ever was. I've interviewed him a number of times. In fact, I got to tell you this story, Brian, because you'll enjoy this. I was once interviewing Rocker during his career, and he said a lot of inflammatory things, but. Two minutes into the interview, I hear a siren, and I said, John, what's going on? He said, I'm in the HOV lane by myself, and I'm getting pulled over. I'll call you back. <laughs> well, about 30 seconds, 30 seconds later, he calls me back, and I said, how'd you get out of it so quickly? He said, oh, as a policewoman, I gave her my autograph, and she let me go. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. That's well, typical, let's, though. Uh, I mean, you know. So many ballplayers think that they're like Pete Rose. I mean, I'm Pete Rose. I can't. I can do anything I want. Well, that's how Rocker felt too. Yeah. 
Well, let, let's get more back into the uh, the, the Mets Braves angle of it. And okay. you know, to me, it's interesting for for two teams that have been in the same league for you know going on sixty years now. There hasn't been a whole lot of trades between the two teams. Um, is there one that stands out in your mind as having the biggest impact? Well, the best one for the Mets, in my opinion, goes all the way back to 1962 when the Mets acquired on waivers Frank Thomas, the original Frank Thomas, for the waiver price of $25,000. He had 34 home runs that year. So that was a pretty good buy they got, left fielder Frank Thomas. Not a great fielder, but he could really hit home runs, especially at the polo grounds. I thought that was the best deal that the Mets ever made with the Braves. There have been other deals, too. Felix Mion coming over to the Mets from the Braves, very good second baseman, good number two hitter. I thought that was good. I did not like some of the other deals that happened. Uh, Jeff Francoeur was traded to the Mets by the Braves for Ryan Church. I never liked Church with the Mets, and I hated him with the Braves. And his career was over shortly thereafter. And Kelly Johnson and Frank Kerr have gone back and forth so many times I can't keep track. I keep waiting for the Braves to sign him, just uh, Kelly Johnson, that is, just so that they can turn around and flip him to the Mets at the deadline. And one of the guys that uh, you got from the, the second Kelly Johnson deal is uh, doing a, a nice job in, in the minor leagues now. He's a, a closer for you, Akil Morris. Yeah, that's right. He is a he's a future prospect as well. The Braves do have a lot of blue chip arms down there, and hopefully they can use some of them to trade for some veteran help. Yeah, the deal with Morris when he was with the Mets is he had an electric arm, he had a bunch of strikeouts, but he had a, a bunch of walks too, and he was walking six guys per nine innings in the minor leagues, and that's generally not a, a recipe for success. But the last time that I checked, he'd only given up uh, two walks in uh, ten innings. So uh, perhaps the Braves have done something to, to tweak his uh, delivery, and that would be something if he came up and, and was uh, some kind of salve for the Braves' bullpen issues that we talked about earlier. Earlier. Now let, let's talk a little bit about your uh, about your book, the New Baseball Bible. Um, you know, obviously with a, a title like that, it, it's something that that must talk about more than just the Braves or more than just one one or two teams. It must in, incorporate all of MLB. It does. And you might recall the old sporting news was called the Bible of Baseball. It said it right on their front mm-hmm. page, right under the words of sporting news, the Baseball Bible of the World. And that's what my book was intended to be also. It originated as a book called The Baseball Catalog in 1980. It was a Book of the Month Club alternate that year and was later called The Baseball Almanac and is now called The New Baseball Bible. And the subtitle, it's a long one, is Notes, Nuggets, Lists, and Legends from Our National Pastime. And Jay Johnson wrote the foreword. Alan Schwartz, who's another baseball author I know, wrote the preface. And it is everything you want to know about baseball we're afraid to ask, as I mentioned earlier. Basically, if you look at the book, it's the old farmer's almanac with a baseball motif, the kind of a book you can put in your bathroom, pick it up anywhere, turn to any page, and you'll find something on that page that will make you say, gee, I didn't know that. Now, I was at your website earlier and looking at uh, some of the credits you've amassed over a a nearly five-decade career, and it's extremely impressive. But I have to ask you about one specifically, and and that's that uh, it said you did baseball card projects. And as a big baseball card collector, I'm curious to what baseball card projects you worked on. I wrote the back of the cards for just about every major card company, Topps, Upper Deck, Donruss, 
Ted Williams Card Company, which was my favorite because they paid the best until the player strike of 94, <laughs> 95 wiped them out. But I wrote baseball card backs, and that was very enjoyable. Pinnacle was another one I worked for. Really, really had fun with that. So when you're looking at the back of the card, and it has the cartoon and the little text that goes with it, it says, Lumpy batted 280 in the Banana League last year. That's what you wrote? <laughs> no, no, no. I wrote the longer bi- uh, biographies of the players. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. You mentioned uh, some of the, the card companies, and some of those are, are no longer in business, and we seem like we only have one or two card companies after having maybe, oh, I don't know, a dozen or so in the early 90s. Yes, I'm, I liked it so much better the other way, but I understand what baseball is doing with their licensing, and they just wanted to have one company with a license, and it's really almost a monopoly for tops. But Panini is still around, and they're putting out their cards, and they can't use the player logos. And Upper Deck, I guess, has the same problem. They can't use the player logos. Yeah, when you can't use the player logos, that really takes away some of the appeal of the card. I remember there was a, a serial that uh, didn't have the permission to, to use the insignias, and they, they really looked like they were wearing uh, long johns out there on the field, and it didn't go over real well. Now, in addition I think that, to that all was Post, sports- right? I'm sorry, Correct. Brian, was that Correct. Post? It was the early yeah. 90s. Okay. Yes, in yep. the early 90s. Now, in addition to all of your, your baseball writing, you're also a big travel writer. Yes, I am. I've been a travel writer and a baseball writer since graduating from college in 1969. Fantastic. And do you have any travel sites that you'd like to plug here in our last 30 seconds? Well, I do a podcast on Thursday night called Travel Itch Radio. It's on 8 o'clock Eastern. And I also do a baseball one called Braves Banter at 7 o'clock Eastern on Thursday nights. Well, Dan, I, I really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to join us and talking about the Mets Braves tonight. And uh, hopefully uh, tomorrow's Mets Braves game goes as well as tonight's does. Did. Uh, actually, it's supposed to be rained out. and I'm disappointed because the pitching matchup favors the Braves tomorrow. Well, we're all out of time. That was Dan Schlossberg, author of the New Baseball Bible, and I'm Brian Jura. Thanks for joining us here on Mets 360. Good night, everyone.